Dear Mrs., Mr., Ms., or Mr. and Mrs., words cannot express the deep personal grief I experienced when your son, husband, father, or brother was killed, wounded, or reported missing in action. Signed, Colonel Cathcart. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to the Actual Garbage Podcast, Consumption Log 12. I'm your host, David Paddock. Across from me, we got Nicole Paddock. Hello. And uh, to her left, we have Ryan Riley. You're crazy. Yeah, you're crazy. You're crazy. You're all crazy. I don't want to go to war. All right, well, let's Does do it Does anyone here want to go to war? They're trying to kill me. <laughs> They're trying to kill everyone. We're here to discuss... What difference does that make? <laughs> We're here to discuss Catch-22. Expect a shitload of that banter Excellent. in this particular conversation. I've got my book... Uh, Bookmark to that, hell. That book looks heavily annotated. There, I ran David. out of tabs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I had to stop at sixty, but uh, we'll survive, I'm sure. Excellent. Um, if we want to get an absolute overview, a uh, ten thousand foot uh, vantage of this book, Nicole, do you want to uh, give that a shot? Oh, geez. Okay. Oh, it's been a long time since I've done some good lit crit here. I mean, I'll I'll do it for you if oh, you want. Well, but it's it's your pick. This well, week, I, okay. So. Well, technically, David selected the book, and I wanted to add the movie with it because he had not seen it. Um, I love both in their in their own respect. Um, and Catch Twenty Two is a it is a novel set in World War Two mm-hmm. about a pilot that thinks everybody is trying to kill him because he is within a system that does not work in any sort of rational sense, and he's trying to attack it rationally and failing miserably while he's at it. Now, that's a very broad overview. This book is long, it has a lot of characters, and there is a lot of different... Well, one of the Lit Crypt books I said, different different ethics. Like, each character kind of represents a different space within this system and manages it differently. And, uh... I'm sure we're going to get into that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to even know necessarily where to begin with this book because there, each chapter is called a character's name who may not even necessarily be referenced <laughs> in the chapter itself. And my favorite character does not have his own chapter. And who might that be? That would be Orr. But Orr we'll is, get back to Orr. But Orr is discussed extensively in the Havermeyer chapter. Yes. Yeah. So... <laughs> Uh, if I could go a little bit further, too, with this overview, it's a yeah. novel written by a guy named Joseph Heller. Uh, it is, as Nicole said, it is, it is, and I think one of the things we can maybe get into or just touch off here earlier is that uh, this is a war novel, and it is conspicuously a post-World War II novel. It's set, it's set in World War II, but it occurs afterwards, and there is kind of a larger tradition of American literature that occurs about this subject matter during this time period of the 50s and 60s, where... You know, Americans, I think, are kind of reconciling the fact that they won the war, but that it was, and indeed war is, a very horrible and brutish experience. And we also have to kind of emphasize, too, that the novel, if you've never read it before, um, it can be very daunting. I mean, it's something that I wouldn't expect someone who doesn't read a lot of novels. I wouldn't hand Catch-22 Catch to them and say, have at it, because it is, it is conspicuously not told in a straight linear narrative. In fact, it is it tries its damnedest to avoid a kind of linearity, a kind of this leads to this leads to this leads to this kind of format. Oh yeah, no, it uh in in a pantheon of movies and other media that we've been consuming that are anachronistic in design, uh, don't care about plot necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh this move or this movie and book uh, by extension 
they don't care a whole lot about it, and that's the chapter titles allude to this, because when Joseph Heller wants to present the vignette of a character or a particular setting within this general madness Mm -hmm. in which everyone is calling themselves crazy, he just does it. And all he does to allude to when it takes place in time is he sort of references in the narrative, whether this is before or after a certain battle or before Yossarian goes AWOL, or he just says, you know, this fits roughly in this general span of time. And not much indication beyond that. I mean, you could put this book in chronological order, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, um, it sounds like early on there were critics that tried to put this book in chronological order, and uh, they all ran into issues with it because there are probably some irregularities. But here's the bigger issue at hand is it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like the order of events doesn't – like the specifics of the order of the events don't really – matter in terms of the whole picture of the book. Yeah, the only thing that really changes, I would say there are two, I mean, to my reading, I read back through it twice for this, which, you know, our our rule of movies, (laughs) I believe, applies to games and books as well. It behooves you to read these things, or even if it does take a hell of a long time, I mean, this book is. Well, I read, I I did read, I read through the book once, and then I did read a, a complete book of lit crit on the book so it was like yeah. two two catch 22 related <laughs> well, but also uh, too that I've, I've i've kind of read some of the literary, literary criticism that has tried to find the order in this chaos and in fact the conclusion they've reached is that there is intentional there is intentional kind of um what are they not not um points of contrast not points of contrast like like outright contradiction in yeah. the way the novel is set up initially as well. Like there are points that actually don't li- line up with each other, and that the book almost disagrees with itself. I mean, in the in the kind of post World War II literature, or even in the twentieth century literature, we tend to describe this as somehow being an unreliable narrator, which is that the person and who is who is telling us the story. Uh, we are not exactly ever aware of. It's never a character in the book that's that's telling us the story, and it and. Once again, there, there has to be a kind of point or an intention. So if we wanted to maybe just deal with this right off the bat, I mean, why put an out, an, a book so out of order that like Catch-22 is? Again, I, I think it's so that you can properly encapsulate the characters. Because if you were to spread them over the course of the book and you, you kept getting, it would make, I mean, not to bring this point up before it's time, mm-hmm. but Yossarian is frequently considered the main character of the book. But the way the book's written drastically de-emphasizes its main characters because instead of following one person on their journey through the madness of Pianosa during World War II, it's just Pianosa during World War II, and the camera, if you will, just zooms in on one point of madness there and sticks on it for as long as it needs to right. to complete the thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that the I don't know that the anachronistic character of it was a. Style choice beyond that. I don't know that I. I don't know unless oh, Heller yeah. can back that up. I don't think. Uh, I don't know that I would see that as being any particular. I mean, I guess I already said this. It's. I don't think it's a style thing. I think it is more instrumental than that. Yeah, absolutely. Nicole, you want to? Oh, take a like stab I at said, it? I. My biggest thing is, I. I think if you get too caught up in the chronology of it, I think you're kind of just missing the bigger point. To which is, to a certain extent, what David was saying is. Because we're looking at how all these characters are dealing with this irrational system that is at play right. on primarily Pianosa. Um, you know, so, so I mean, is it important which in which order these events happened? You know, 
to a certain extent. I mean, there's obviously, you know, the way the, there's, you know, stuff that happens at the end when some of the characters may have died. And then there's, you know, stuff at the beginning when there were more characters alive. But I think if you get too caught up in the chronology, um, you know, you're kind of letting yourself down a little bit. Yeah, I would say that if nothing else, uh, what I was going to say uh when I was commenting on how long the book is, is that there really only seem to be two parts to this book. There's the, the vast majority of the book, which is up front, and then at about, let's say, the last quarter, mm-hmm. things start to degrade dramatically. Yes. The first mm-hmm. time it is referenced that Yosarian goes AWOL, the landscape becomes far more barren. Way more of the characters who have managed to rationalize and survive start failing to do yep. so at that point, and it just, it falls and off at Even that the point. dialogue, which, you know, one of the things that pulls me into this book, I mean, right off the back, it starts quick, and it throws you right in it, is the dialogue. David David has probably I some got, good quotes oh, here. Yeah, it, this book hits the ground running. Well, I mean, the, the first, technically, Catch-22 is the second paragraph, uh, where Yosarian does not actually have jaundice, mm-hmm. but it's close enough to jaundice that he can stay in the hospital. Yes. And the book is obsessed with these dualisms. Yes. Like, everything in this book is this way and this way. And the logical, I mean, for those unfamiliar with Catch-22, which is almost seems culturally That's, impossible. Yeah, it seems like it's pretty... Is that it is one thing that makes logical sense, and another thing that makes logical sense, that when viewed together, but heads. And this book is just... Loaded and it comes to a stalemate. Page basically. after page of this, and well, and then I guess what I was saying, uh, yes, Ryan's hopping and it's, around, it, and it's beautiful. And like I said, it starts off right out the bat with these with these dualisms. But as the book gets darker in the last quarter of it, even the writing style starts. You know, mm-hmm. at, at first you get this real black humory, fun kind of feeling mm-hmm. out of out of this this witty banter, and then it it starts. It starts dying off a little bit and just getting more. It starts getting more dark and less humorous. It gets more real. Yes. Like they stop being in there. This this is the thing that, uh, and we'll hit on this with the movie, I'm sure. One of the reasons I was very hesitant when we were, uh, when you guys recommended the movie, I didn't think this would work as a movie because the narrator is provides so much of what happens in this book. He provides the thought processes. He provides the logic that doesn't get stated explicitly. And that ends up being way more important to events in the first half. Because when they're on base, unless someone's got a gun or something ridiculous happens, which ridiculous things do happen, um, we're talking about officers. We're talking about ivory tower men who only are in real danger when they're flying over the target. And there is there is sort of a cleave between the enlisted men and the officers in the book, where the enlisted men all seem to have a much more practical understanding of the world than the officers do. And it's like the officers have, in being at war, which this would make sense. I mean, the book starts and mostly stays in a time when everyone on this base has been in a plane 40-plus times. They are jaded. Yeah, like, they've all been there about three years by the time this this book starts like they they have enlisted they've gone through training and they have been i mean they're not directly like in the line of fire action but they have been like in action for about yeah. 3 years they're, when this book They're captains up. and colonels and majors like they've been around forever and that's the kind of thing sitting on a tiny base in Italy doing fuck all besides occasionally getting shot at that can lead to some of the colorful characters that are merely trying to live with themselves and each other 
when this book and actually, survive when this book starts getting going. So Ryan looks like he, he has <laughs> an explosion. I got about, ni- I got about nineteen thoughts. points to make here, but um, let's like, just to just to kind of initially talk about the the uh, the effect and we, where I hopefully I will hopefully bring this back around to, which is that one of my favorite descriptions of war is is that it contains tediously long stretches of boredom punctuated by moments of extreme terror. And I think that that has a very good way to kind of characterize what these guys go through uh, as they go go into this. Now, referring back to the structure and organization of the novel, it makes sense that a book that is about irrationality, that is about the contradictions within systems, that is about the almost subjective and odd ways that people are adapting to to, to this horrific system they're put into, that the book itself would be a feature and a, and a function of that kind of, uh, of those larger points he's trying to make. And it's very, very clever the way that he puts this book together. But also, you've talked before, you know, his his device in trying to, you know, remind readers where they are in the narrative in any given chapter is to kind of refer to specific battles, is to refer back to, you know, um, when Milo bombs the base or things. You know, yeah. you're, you're given hints. The points that, when things get real. Yeah, yes. and there's only there's only about four major points, yeah. really. So there's not like a whole lot of them in this span it's, of time. Um, it's Avignon where Snowden gets killed over. It's uh, Bologna, Bologna. And it's Milo bombing the base. And, and Ferrara. And Ferrara. And Ferrara, yeah. Ferrara yeah, all the, the metal. metal. All the places <laughs> where people die, where, yes. where yeah. the book, where it becomes a war book again. So, and, but then he... But once again, the, the clever way to kind of put this together and structure it is that it is it makes it complex, but it also I think weeds out a certain amount of people, which is that they're you know he's limit he's really limiting the effect that this book could have had theoretically about by making it so difficult to follow what is going on, and yet paying attention a second or third reading it doesn't become that oddly structured of a book, right? Even though you have a huge or expansive amount of characters, you get. Familiar. I mean, we could probably name off like five of our favorite characters, and you know, go oh, ten, go it's fi- amazing. fifteen, twenty. When how I was going can, back, get them. Yeah, when I was going back and thinking about it uh, in preparation for this podcast, I almost like floored myself with how many characters show up throughout this book. And great fucking characters. And well, oh, that's solid, solid oh, if, characters. If we didn't say this at the top, I mean, Ryan's admonition, <laughs> if, if the event that you are, like, rhetorically illiterate aside, this is maybe my favorite book. Oh, and, okay. I, we, I thought this I, was, like, the only piece of fiction yeah, you find worth reading. You have a Pretty known close. hatred of fiction. So, I do. I mean, why, <laughs> why do you like this book? Could we maybe just address this kind of concerns? Like, Rhetoric. Really? It's well written. And it's, it, this is, this is from the strong, I Okay, the the era that this book was written, I think, is the strongest point in time in American literature. Almost all, because I am not a huge fiction person either, but almost all of the fiction I do enjoy comes out of this era. Yeah, like the, this postmodern era. The right. absurdity, the kind of inhumane character of the characters. I mean, it's very telling. My least favorite parts of this book are the ones where they're where the men are interacting with women. Right. So, I mean, the part of fiction that I don't like holds true in this book as well. Right. But between... Luckily, there's limited interaction (laughs) with women, much to their chagrin. Much to their chagrin. (laughs) I mean, it's not that I hate that stuff. It's that if I had to gloss over any part of it in the second reading, that may have been where it happened. (laughs) But the... um, No, it's... The dualism, I'm a massive fan of the the dualist perspective. I thought for a long time my favorite number was four. It turns out it's actually two. Nice. (laughs) Because I'm a huge fan, and I realized this in my writing, that I always, always use blank and blank. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll use that twice a sentence. Right. Just because I like that structure. And this book is loaded with it. The characters are great, even when they're being shitty to each other. 
I just, yeah, no. I... So the, he does, I think, the way that Heller kind of reacts to this, because, you know, there's this, you know, it, it is a war book. If I could just digress on this idea of it being a war book. Uh, if okay, we wanted Because yeah. I, have, I have some theories on that. I don't think yeah. it's a war book. Well, I just, <laughs> I don't think, okay, I, well, I just, maybe, maybe, okay, maybe well, one let's, helpful well, let's, way. Let's get being on the table before not being <laughs> Yeah, exactly, because, you know, ostent, ostent, how do you say that word? Ostensibly? Thank you. It is a war, I mean, these guys are at war dropping bombs on people, <laughs> and I'll, I'll just give me that. So, so, but the thing then is, is that, look, if, if this is a movie about extremes and about how we rationalize the most ex- one of the most extreme endeavors of human behavior, we, you know, Heller, I think, has a point to make about war in particular, but part of the success of this novel is that Catch-22 lifts off, literally, from the from this being a, a war book. I mean, it is, it, is, it is a war book that is also so much more than a war book, and uh, or an anti-war book uh, as well. And it kind of holds in the tradition, and if I could just bring it up for viewers who are maybe uh, have, have experienced this novel, um, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut is kind of held up as being, you know, if it's uh, the, the, the Dunbar, or the, excuse me, the Clevenger to uh, Heller's Yossarian in Catch-22. <laughs> uh, it does have a, a similar feel to the, uh, to the ideas of absurdity, to the ideas of being caught in human tragedy and how in response to this. And Vonnegut, if I could just name drop there for a little bit, approaches it in a very different way. If anything, it is very much in Billy Pilgrim's own subjective experience, where in this sense you have these this odd, not that it's necessarily objective, but that it's plurality of subjectivity makes it very difficult to find a single experience to follow through Catch-22. And in that sense, too, it's a, you know, it is a novel about systems, uh, Catch-22 is. It is a novel about process. And the way that is structured and organized in any sense of our lives, I think, is how this relates back to it being more than just a war novel. So why is it not a war novel, Nicole? So, I, and, and I, I did, uh, let's see, I, I read a book by Stephen W. Potts that Ryan recommended yes. called Catch-22, Anti-Heroic, Anti-Novel. Um, so maybe it's not even a novel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, to my mind, it's a set of short stories. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, in, okay. that, in that sense. So I, 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 I feel like after going through it again and after, you know, getting some influence from this book here, I feel like... It's more of a, like it's an, it's a, uh, he references Camus, Camus the Stranger in, mm-hmm. in like an absurd philosophical sense. Right. But I feel like it's more of a, it's a struggle within us. It's, it's, it's about a struggle within a system and everyone reacts to it differently. Mm-hmm. Like obviously Yosarian, because he doesn't believe in God, doesn't want he doesn't want the fame and fortune and, and you know, yeah. he, he doesn't want the medals and he doesn't want to become higher in the military. He's just trying to survive. And he, I th- Yeah, he has he has a rather within the context of a military service. And this is this. He butts heads with a lot of people on this. He has an, an almost irrational desire to survive the war. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so I feel like at all costs. Yes, yeah, I feel all. like though it is in a war setting, it is. You know, that's the setting in which we we see this struggle within this irrational system. Much of the way, and this book references it too, is like uh, much in the way that like the Kafka's The Castle or The Trial is, Mm -hmm. you know, you have somebody that's stuck in this bureaucratic system that is just like failing miserably to use rationale to get out of it. So I feel like the... Uh, and the book was also written during the McCarthy era, shortly after World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and I 
I feel like there's there's almost a little bit more of that, like I said, that feeling of you're in this soul-crushing, irrational system and you are trying to survive. And and the war is maybe secondary because that's the place right. um, in which this system is, is taking place. But it's really about the survival within said system. There's also... There are also plenty of people who are thriving within the system. Yeah, well, that's what I mean because people. Which, every, which we, we should we should get to characters. Yeah, sooner we'll get than there. Later, we'll but, get we'll get to that soon. But that's what I mean. But everybody in this book has different motivations. So some people do do very well in this system. Uh, Yosarian, who is the primary character, I don't even want to say main. It just feels it he's feels the odd. most character. But he is <laughs> yes, he is he is like the the most present character. He does not thrive in in this system and he also doesn't do a good job of m- working around it either mm-hmm. i mean he does a lot of complaining yeah. but he doesn't do a great job of manipulating the system either oh, he just he's benefited by being just almost jaundiced the best the best he get is he gets his happenstance i mean he does he does some degree of manipulation i mean unlike some of the more principled characters he is He's actually good at lying in a way that a lot of the other characters are. He tries to game the system unsuccessfully, but to be fair, he's alive at the end of the book. Well, but, but too, I think Nicole mentions the idea of, 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 of absurdity. And, and, and there is definitely a sense of, that, of meaninglessness that yes. he finds within this. And, you know, there's, it's very clever because the way the book kind of approaches this, which is that, you know, ostensibly, I'll say that again, for, the, for all intents and purposes, <laughs> you are in a war supposed to be killing people, and there's this really kind of horrible logic to war, which is that the more horrible you can make a war, ideally, the quicker it would end. And that the, is the, I, That's been the twisted logic for over 100 years. And absolutely. And this kind of re- really presents us with a stark notion, which is that, you know, if you were the, if you, if you were one of the facilitators of this horrendousness, and especially since these guys are, and it should be said, these are not fighters, I, you know, men who are crossing, ta- you know, fields with landmines, you know, dodging machine gun bullets. These guys are bombers, right? The only contact they have with death is when it, you know, is when their planes are impacted by flak. But the death that they cause, they are enormously removed from. And I think that's an interesting component, which is that the the blaséness with which they everyone else kind of approaches this task of dropping hundreds of tons of bombs on people, people like yeah. it's indiscriminate. The way that they approach this in this kind of detached sense, which of course mirrors the the atomic age that this is written in as well. You know that they that the people and authority that your uh, Syrian comes up against when he's like, you know, I don't want to kill people, and he's like, that's it's your duty. You know, like yeah. this is what you're supposed to do. And, and as bombers, like, it's no. <laughs> it's so impersonal. Yes. yes, it is. I mean, I. And to a certain extent, the the planes that they're flying in, just p- flying those planes in and of themselves, is probably about as dangerous <laughs> as any kind of anti-aircraft. Oh yeah. Like you know, oh, fire const- that they would come under. Constantly bitching about the design of the planes, <laughs> but how hard it is to get from <laughs> compartment to compartment. But it, but it, like, but once again. I mean, the, the meaning that he's trying to find is the meaning not only in, in himself, why he's here, why he should be wanting to kill people, why he shouldn't. I mean, the meaninglessness is just not only is, is I think because we're kind of getting wrapped up in the idea that, you know, you know, Yosarian's desire is to survive at all costs. And, you know, to his point is, is that, well, why do you want to survive? To what point? What meaning do you want to achieve? He's like, I just want to live. Like, yeah, fuck all. You know, like, well, I and, want meaning. And, and all the what... other characters are kind of wrapped up in this idea that, oh, you need to live for this. Or I stand yeah, for that. Or I have these that's ideas. why they do better. Because, um, you know, like, 
some, of, some them, of them. Yeah, some of some of them are. Or they're able to handle the system well, a little better than he is. Or, or like I said, they actually were. Lo- Yosarian doesn't really have any meaning because it is established that he's an atheist, so he doesn't have the religion to cling on to. Yeah. Like oh, I he's said, no believer in anything. Exactly, yes. exactly, which always puts you in a tough spot, anyways. You know, in an existential sense. Absolutely. Um, you know, so he doesn't buy into the religion. He has no interest in moving up the system. Can Can I change the verb here? Yeah. I want to use the word. Instead of handle, I want to use the word tolerate the system because a massive number of people in this book are not handling it very well because they're dead. Yes. (laughs) To quote the book, Clevenger is dead. Yeah. That's the primary problem with his philosophy. Yes. Um, There's, Yosarian doesn't tolerate it. That's what makes him sort of the iconoclast because, I mean, again, for all intents and purposes, he survived. He yeah. handled he handled it better than all of his pals did. Well, he even says I that mean, at the end. He's like, "Well, if they don't want to fly more missions, they should uh, object, like me." Because basically, <laughs> he pissed off his Colonel Cathcart, which I guess is a good segue into characters, so much that they gave him a deal to go home with one little caveat. Odious condition. Yeah. Yes, the one. This odious deal had one caveat, and that caveat was that he had to say nice things. Yes. About. Colonel Cathcart mm-hmm. and, the and war. Colonel Lieutenant Corn. Colonel Corn. Mm-hmm. So let's segue, I guess, into some characters. Yeah. How do we do? We want to maybe do like a roundtable kind of a thing because we already just c- pick one and. All right. Uh, I'll, one I'll, I'll, I'll 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 step back and let someone else pick uh, oh, pick geez. one. What? Okay. So we. Have- oh, I mean, I guess I'll round on that point if we're gonna. If, okay. If you guys need time to think about who you want to bring I, up, I'll talk about Dunbar, but um, that's okay. Because I the impersonality of the bombers, the thing I was trying to think of, and I think this is actually the case. Um. Not once do we see the political enemies of the United States in this book. No. They never show up. The war is literally as impersonal as possible. And there's a quote, one of my favorite quotes from the book, uh, which I have here. uh, Quote, Clevenger recoiled from the action board's hatred as though from a blinding light. These three men who hated him spoke his language and wore his uniform, but he saw their loveless faces set immutably into cramped, mean lines of hostility and understood instantly that nowhere in the world, not in all the fascist tanks or planes or submarines, not in the bunkers, behind the machine guns or mortars, or behind the blowing flamethrowers, not even among all the expert gunners of the crack Hermann Goering Anti-Aircraft Division, or among the grisly connivers in all the beer halls in Munich and everywhere else, were there men who hated him more. Yes. They don't have an enemy outside of the base. No, they really they really don't. That's why I said it's almost more of like a McCarthy-era thing, where you don't have a real enemy. The you enemy know, like, within. Yeah, because mm-hmm. communism isn't a real enemy. It's, you know, a, a philosophy, and... Well, that, that Most also, of these enemies are within, at least the ones in this book that they interact with. Well, that it also makes I think the good point too, which is that you know within within the larger within the system within the larger system, you know this this endeavor of war is part of the overall logic and makeup of of you know the human experience and interaction as well. And I think it's very clever that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't allow the reader the out to say that. You know why is 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 Yosarian justified or unjustified in his opposition? Well, you know there's an enemy and they're doing something horrible. He doesn't give you that out. I mean, he, you really have to kind of no. All you know, the enemies yeah. are technically on his side. Yeah, you've got to square the circle of the fact that how you've got to first internally justify the the reasons and actions and purposes that you're doing these things before you're able to kind of recognize itself in opposition. And and, and it's late 1944. They say several times, America's going to win. Yes, exactly. They know. The, uh, Germany yeah, they is know it's folding. on. It's on the way. Yeah, this thing's on the way of wrapping up here. 
So at pu- public enemy number one to a lot of the people on the base at Pianosa <laughs> <clears throat> is Colonel Cathcart. Yes. Yeah. So Colonel Cathcart, he uh, he works pretty well in the system because he's driven by ambition. Yes. He does want to move up in the ranks and he wants to be acknowledged for his brilliant yes. <laughs> ideas. Here's the catch. He doesn't have any of his own ideas. <laughs> no, fame is about as far down that list as he's gotten. I, this is one of my favorite scenes in the whole book. He makes, they constantly refer to, the, and this was something that I, I knew there was no way the movie was going to handle this, unfortunately. I was, gonna, I, I was waiting to see if they tried. <laughs> Colonel Cathcart spends all of his time as an introverted mess trying to figure out how everyone around him sees him. Yes. yes. And this is characterized in the form of feathers in his cap and black, black eyes. <laughs> so much so that he has a chart that he draws up, or it may just it may just be on a sketch pad. Oh, he admi- he, he, admi- he specifically admires his work. He, he, he makes the little pen, and he really he sat back and admired his, his, oh, yeah. his ability to do well, this. Well, no, and that's the first thing he does is he determines what his primary issue at the moment is. Mm-hmm. And his primary issue is Yosarian yes. with five exclamation marks. And he sits back and revels in the progress he's already made yes. in identifying his problem. <laughs> and then he goes and he makes an actual list and he has two columns, feathers in my cap and black eyes. Mm-hmm. And he attempts to assess mm-hmm. in the, mathma- the most mathematical way he can what he can get Colonel Corn to do for him yes. to make him look better. Yes. Yes, so his sidekick is Colonel Korn, and uh, the reason Colonel Cathcart is enemy number one Mm -hmm. for many of the men on the base, Yossarian included, is because he keeps raising the number of missions they have to fly. And this is an ongoing theme throughout the book because Yossarian can never go home because as soon as he reaches the cap of missions, Mm -hmm. Cathcart raises them again. Yep. And mind you, this is not a directive coming from a general. Everybody else... There are people that are getting out of rotation with 40. Yes. Or Cath- 25. 25, yeah, yeah. Cathcart is seeking glory in such a way that it is uh, killing and maddening his crew around him. Yes. <laughs> but that's, you know, but he doesn't have any other original ideas, so that's the one thing he can keep doing. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> Until Corn comes up with something more ingenious to do. Which yes. is hilarious because his underling is the person that is his his route to his success. His go-to, which yeah. Of course, but also, too, I mean, he... The way that he hates and and feels frustrated by people. So one of my favorite scenes with with this interaction is with uh, uh, Chaplain Tapman and and Colonel Cathcart and Colonel Cathcart Please, is Captain Chaplain. Yeah, Captain Chaplain, Chaplain Tapman. Tapman. Yes. <laughs> so he's At Tapman. Yeah, At Tapman, um, father as uh, we could call him. But he's um, uh, but they're having this interaction and. Cathcart's trying to tell him the, these awesome plum tomatoes and how they're rich and supple like a woman's bosom. And, of course, Colonel Cathcart, realizing he's made a social faux pas, immediately begins to despise and hate the chaplain for putting him in a position because in any other company, that would have been a great joke. But he hates the chaplain because he's given himself a black eye, not because of what he said, but because of who the other person is. And it's, it's just <laughs> really, really hilarious about how there is this kind of deflection but also much more deeply that how he views the world and how he views his position in accordance with other people. Yeah. Right. Rank uh, is very important to him. Social standing is very important like to I him. Like I said, he's trying so hard to get in the Saturday Evening Post. Yeah. yeah. yeah that recognition <laughs> that you said before is the key to kind of his personality. And also, it's 
this this ambition at all cost, especially if other people can bear the cost. Like that is yeah. a huge under underlying. Well, it's always about getting someone else to bear the cost. I mean, that's the joy of being in the military. Is there's always someone to move down, move, move and push the garbage down. Baby. And yeah. he, like someone I'm surprised hasn't come up yet, Milo is indispensable. Well, Milo's so, his own. His own. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. save him for the. Oh, right I'm time. sure he'll yeah, come yeah. up. <laughs> No, but Cathcart, Cathcart's funny because his his neurosis is largely responsible for everything else. Right. His ambition really does cause most of the issues in the book at heart. Um, not even the generals above him. Although the generals above him are even more in the clouds than um, Cathcart That's himself. That's because they're true military men. Like, yeah, they, 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 they live and breathe <laughs> the system. They are the most lost. I mean, they're... The generals literally scheme against each other but but it's but it's also so funny that what what continually gives him so to, these black eyes especially when you when you go through that list is once again the, the hilarity of catch 22 is that he wouldn't be continually getting these black eyes if he wasn't pushing his pilots to fly more missions because all of his black eyes are reactions of his own pilots to having to fly continually fly more missions. Yes. So the very thing he's trying to do that he thinks will get him success inevitably continually leads him to further and further get black eyes and marks against oh, him. Oh, it's he, just it's wonderfully hilariously set up as you just go through each incident. Yeah, as, that's the catch twenty two plays full on in him. I mm-hmm. mean, it's dual as and again, I, I'm tempted to call him the main character a lot of the time just because he's definitely he, the driver of action. He, mm-hmm. And he embodies he embodies what makes Catch-22 what it is because, I mean, talk, talking about the list of feathers in his cap and black eyes, those two columns are almost all the same things yeah. that he's just approaching from different angles. <laughs> where there's a scene where there's a scene where he's forced he is forced by logic to promote Yosarian for not dropping his bombs over Ferrara the first time because the second time the plane went around, they hit. Yes. So in both columns, he has that they blew up the bridge of Ferrara, but also that they blew up the bridge of Ferrara because of the reason why it happened. Yeah. And this just every time he well, puts he something is... on one side or the other, he can rationalize that it's both a good and a bad thing. Yes. Well, that's, you know, because he could court-martial Yossarian, but then that would make him look bad that he has that would be pilots a black yeah. going out of line. So instead... They give him a medal for doing a terrible job on yes. the mission. Yeah. Absolutely. That, yeah. that accidentally dovetails into a good job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, anyone, uh, can I just mention a smaller character who we won't hopefully... Uh, that is, Certainly. Uh, I liked, um, One of my favorite characters is Dunbar. And <laughs> I love Dunbar because... Um, I think I think one of the phrases I read said that Dunbar, along with Yosarian, is one of the few people who is aware that he's actually in a war in the novel. Yeah. And, uh, so they're both trying to be in the hospital yeah, as much yeah, as possible. Like, usually, because Yosarian, in order to not fly missions, which of course, in his own Catch Twenty Two way, just prevents him from being able to escape the horror that he's in. Hypothetically, that he'll ever be able to get out of it, if we assume that. But yeah. um, so Dunbar is usually his is in the hospital with Yosarian on some various complaints. Um, but also, I think where the two deviates so brilliantly is that Yosarian seems to be a man completely driven by desires and instincts, and the most passionate of which is to survive. But also, he he loves passionately every woman he meets. I have yet I, I think there's barely a woman in that novel that does not come into contact with Yossarian, who he does not fall madly in love with. Yeah. And 
Including the chaplain. Yes, including the chaplain, who he just adores all of a sudden. And so, but, this, but, but he is very much projecting forward, wanting to find, clearly, I think, wanting to find stimulus, wanting, just wanting and wanting and wanting. Primarily wanting to, to live. Survive. Yes, wanting to live primarily. Dunbar, however, has this idea that he, of course, also wants to live at all costs, but he wants to achieve it by living as little as possible. And his strategy <laughs> of the fact that he might die anytime soon is to live as long as possible. So what Dunbar tries to do... And by long as possible, he's taking this in a very metaphysical yes. sense. Yes. He tr- but in, order, in order to extend his life, he tries to be or find himself as bored as possible so that the moments drag <laughs> on. And this is Dunbar's reaction that the world, you know, he, he might die, so he wants to live as long as possible. And he says it's glorious because as bored as he gets, he can live hours, days, years in like these horribly, in yeah, horribly bored <laughs> moments that he has, which I just love. I mean, it's one of my like niche, niche little characters within this. Well, uh, I love a good Dunbar. And scene. what's what's important about Dunbar too is you know, like you mentioned, him and Yosarian, Yosarian are, are are pretty close, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they're both taking this survival thing very seriously. Well, you know, Dunbar pisses off the wrong people, and he has disappeared. Yes. So moving forward after that. Mm-hmm. Yosarian is threatened by everyone. They're like, if you don't quit acting up, yeah. you could get disappeared yes. like Dunbar, <laughs> yes. which is even worse than being killed in battle, which means your own people are basically yeah, he getting gets, rid of you. I don't, I can't recall if, I mean, is, is it implied that he's like just taken out? Yeah, well, it's, oh, it's he is abrupt. disappeared. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. like basically he's, he's there and he's not there and nobody knows. Yeah, Yosarian and Dunbar are in the hospital. Nurse Duckett takes Yosarian a way to tell yeah, him yes. that it's happening, and it happens by the time they get back. Yes, okay, yeah. Yep. And then they just keep threatening Yosarian afterwards. They're like, do you want them to disappear you like they did Dunbar? Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, it happens. The enemy within. Uh, who's next? Nicole's up next. You got to go. No, I picked Cathcart. Well, oh, yeah, I no, I kicked off with Cathcart, Cathcart. here. Cathcart. I, get, I did a little, little Dunbarzy. Let, let me check Hang off on. the characters we've already got. What do we got here? here? Um... I really like Doc Danica. Yeah, go, okay, let's do a little Doctor Danica. Doc Danica is. What about me? Yeah. You think you got problems? What about me? Fucking... He didn't even know how I, he didn't even know what problems were either at that mm-hmm. point. That poor guy. He yeah. really got. Doc Danica was Yosarian's friend and would do almost nothing in his power to help him. <laughs> Doc Danica um, is such a great. He's he's he epitomizes an attitude that is exceptionally first world in nature where his problems are always because they are seen through his lens are mm-hmm. infinitely more important than anyone else's even though they're barely problems yeah and sometimes they're not problems at all like as docs as doc Danica explains his situation back in the states it starts out as being this impoverished ridiculous position where he was living on chicken feed out of his practice and then the war broke out and he lost it but it turns out that's actually even whether that's true or not his position by the time the war started was that he had a corner practice all of the older people had been drafted and he was fucking rolling in it yes um until the war started and then he's bummed out and dr nika doesn't have to fly on that many missions because he's got a deal where mcwatt yes uh, sergeant mcwatt uh, writes his name in on the flight roster so dr nika really only has one problem he's afraid of getting shipped out to the pacific and not because he'll die but because there are diseases yes. that he would rather not have and that is the extent of 
of Dr. Nika's plight as a person. Yeah. And why does he not want to actually now why does he not actually want to get in the plane because he gets extra pay if he gets in the plane, but he gets McGuat to just put him on the manifest. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to do it because getting in those planes is dangerous. Yes. Yeah. But when Yosarian comes to him, which he does frequently, to tell him that he wants to be grounded because mm-hmm. he doesn't want to be in a plane because people shoot at him when he's in the plane, he has basically he basically yeah. just looks at him and goes, well, what about you, me? Yeah, you think you got problems, what yeah. about me? And that's the thing. Dr. Nika isn't a person so much as, like, a force yeah. that that anyone in modern society can relate to. Yeah, he has a lot of first world problems, including <laughs> including the problem he runs into when he is on McWatt's manifest but not in the plane. And McWatt flies into a mountain. Yes. In a, in a quintessentially uh, Joseph Heller attitude uh the, the plane crashes, and Dr. Nika suddenly, like the dead man in Yosarian's tent that cannot be acknowledged to be a real person, Dr. Nika can't convince anyone that he exists anymore. He suffers anymore. bureaucratic death. Yes. <laughs> and because he, is, because he is dead, according to all of the paperwork, yes. he cannot convince anyone that he is actually alive and ends up having to live on the outskirts like some sort of hermit beggar yeah. because nobody will believe that he is alive because on paper, he died. Yeah, he died. And, and that, 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 is the, that is the beautiful absurdity yeah, of no, Catch-22. And, well, and they go to a story about his wife as well, who yeah. becomes a widow and then, of, of course, gets rich from the inheritance of him dying uh, by paper. Yeah. And she just disavows him and it goes off into the novel. Yeah. It's really cute. No, and she would love to have her husband back, but there's yeah. nothing he or anyone can do about no, he's, it. Dead, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's dead. He's missing in action. No, as far as... Dr. Nika talking about all the things, it's an excerpt from the book of uh, I'm talking about Dr. Nika's office and uh, what was happening right before the war broke out. Bills piled up rapidly, and he was soon faced with the loss of his most precious medical instruments. His adding machine was repossessed, <laughs> and then his typewriter. <laughs> the goldfish died. Fortunately, just when things were blackest, the war broke out. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's just, oh, yeah, <laughs> probably... Another was, uh, I'm going to keep accidentally saying this is my favorite quote, and that's not true. There's a lot of them. Um, oh, it was, uh, they had to send a guy from the draft board around to look me over. I was 4F. I had examined myself pretty thoroughly and discovered that I was unfit for military service. <laughs> You'd think my word would be enough, wouldn't you, since I was a doctor in good standing with my county medical society and my local Better Business Bureau, but no, it wasn't. And they sent this guy around just to make sure I really did have one leg amputated at the hip and was helplessly bedridden with incurable rheumatoid arthritis. Yosarian, we live in an age of distrust and deteriorating spiritual values. It's a terrible thing when even the word of a licensed physician is suspected by the country he loves. Oh, God, it burns. Uh, So... I love this character. Yeah, no, I mean, his... The thing is, is that, you know, Danica lacks... As crucially lacks empathy. I mean, really, really incapable. Yeah, or a spine. Well, I mean, I'm sure, but it's funny too because I'm sure we've all had that, like that, that like friend that when you call up to talk about something that's going on, and they're like, you know, all of a sudden you find yourself talking about their problems. Yes. Like they don't give a shit about what's going on in your life. They, you like, you've called me. I've got problems to tell you then, and you're like, yeah, like this isn't the most. This (laughs) this doesn't feel like it's an exchange going on here. I'm sorry. No. The and, Dr. Nika, definitely one of the funniest characters in the book. But it is funny, there is actually a moment... But he got his. For all his white-collar moaning, 
He oh. certainly got his. No, he did, but it's funny because the war does come back into Doc Danica's, uh when when uh, th- or where is it? Yeah, no. Uh, Doctor Nika, when the camp is being strafed mm-hmm. by Milo, Doctor Nika does reveal that when he is outside of the madness of being on the base where nothing is happening of consequence, he does pull together in the way that everybody else does. This is something that's sort of unspoken throughout the book, but given how few of these bombers are lost, I, the people who are doing this. As far as their actual execution as military people, they're perfectly competent to do their job with a couple of exceptions. I mean, Arfie's kind of a klutz, but, I mean, they do manage to bomb these targets, and they do have nice tight bomb patterns. Like, they know how to do this job. <laughs> well, they've been doing a lot of missions, I yeah, certainly really. would Yeah, hope, well, so. they're well-practiced, and it's funny, they... <laughs> Oh, uh, David this is, found another favorite quote. This is, this is, no, this isn't a. This is just to illustrate the point, though. Is that Doctor Nika? It is a mood thing because it isn't necessarily that he's just always like this. Uh, quote: Doctor Nika had lost his head during Milo's bombardment. Instead of running for cover, he had remained out in the open and performed his duty, slithering along the ground through shrapnel, strafing and incendiary bombs like a furtive wily lizard from casual to casualty, administering tourniquets, morphine, splints and sulfonilamide with a dark and doleful visage, never saying one word more than he had to in reading in each man's bluing wound, a dreadful portent of his own decay. So when the world actually bites back at him, he can become a human being. Mm-hmm. It's just the camp does this to people. Well, but it, but it also, too, is that, you know, you've, there's the functions of your office or your station, more importantly, you know, you have to display some sort of competence or ability within those as well, and that's because that's what this—that's why Yosarian suffers so much—is because he refuses to perf- perform his station in this yeah. whole ridiculous machinery, and that's kind of the problem too. Which is that it would—it would kind of almost make sense to a certain degree that you know, Nately would be a good pilot. Or that, you know, that Dr. Nika would be a good doc when it absolutely was really, really required of him to do so. Yeah, when it matters. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for what it's worth, Gus and Wes do his job the rest of the time. Because, I mean, when people are on the base complaining about shit, you just, you paint their gums purple and well, give them a, a laxative they, to throw in they, their bushes. They had a system. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah, I mean, these people aren't in real danger. Yes. Like, real danger is the only thing that these characters, it's the only time they pull together with... A couple of exceptions, which may come around, but yeah. uh, that's enough on Dr. Nika. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, so uh, um, now in, in the Likrit book that you'd given me, uh, it made a note that Heller thought that, you know, Chapman Tapman was the second most, mm-hmm. like, memorable mm-hmm. character. And he is a good character. But what he was surprised is that that was not the case. The character that everyone found, like, most memorable, aside from Yosarian, was Milo Minderbinder. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and man, Milo is a force to be reckoned with. Milo represents the Im- he is the embodiment of unchecked capitalism. Yes. Yeah. He, Corporate capitalism. Yes. He private industry. Yeah. He chases the god of the almighty prophet, and that is the only moral compass that he has because nothing, literally nothing, stands in his way. Mm-hmm. Of making a profit. No, and because they're fighting the communists, it's hard for anybody to turn him down. This is one of those weird things about Milo is that he he absolutely embodies. I mean, and this is going to sound a bit like a 
a soapbox defense, but he embodies exactly what libertarianism is assumed oh, no, to be from I, the outside. He, he's he's where, a sociopathic libertarian yeah. was my very first yeah. like well, thought but on But that's it. that's the thing. It's the it is the idea he embodies the idea that most people have cynically about libertarianism where it is entire where the market literally can do anything. And as long as you follow it logically and wholeheartedly, it will fix everything. Well, and he just follows this. It also it also must be said too that there is a kind of a, a lack of moral a, a lack of morality in its outcomes that also kind of precipitates it, uh, that, that kind of follows from it as well, which is that if you follow the logic of the market, you will realize a profit. Whether or not the actual outcome of that profit is a morally good outcome is beside the point. Oh, yeah. No, that's like, not an issue with Milo. Yeah, if, exactly. if you get a profit, a that's all that matters. Yeah, I mean, it, it, a profit will happen. Whether or not it is good in a larger and I really moral, like, philosophical sense and he is he point. is a libertarian because he, uh, despite it, it's so appropriate because despite being a mil, you know in the military which is a government <laughs> yeah, so. system he does not think that the government should be involved at all in business he doesn't think that that's or their in place. war for that matter well, be, the two become interchangeable well and, and I, I I wish I had a, a uh, annotated book like David does but well, I don't... I'm, I'm, I have a quote oh, okay from but him that he I has a he, so Milo a, a, a big issue for Milo is that he buys he corners the market in Egyptian cotton <laughs> and then finds out that this is not a liquid commodity so he cannot make a profit off it so he gets this idea that maybe he can sell it back to the government because the government should be willing to help him because they should not be able to stand in the way of him making a profit. And if he can't make a profit, they should step in and bail him out yes. so that he can. Because yes. the government's job is to facilitate his, his own ability business. to yes. make profit. Yeah, no, I have a thing, not specifically on the cotton, but... Uh... Milo had been earning many distinctions for himself. He had <laughs> flown fearlessly into danger and criticism by selling petroleum and ball bearings to Germany at good prices in order to make a good profit and help maintain a balance of power between the contending forces. His nerve under fire was graceful and infinite. With a devotion to purpose above and beyond the line of duty, he then raised the price of food in his mess hall so high that all officers and enlisted men had to turn over all their pay to him in order to eat. Mm -hmm. Their alternative... And there was an alternative, of course, since Milo detested coercion and was a vocal champion of freedom of choice, was to starve. Yeah. <laughs> when he encountered a wave of enemy resistance to this attack, he stuck to his position without regard for his safety or reputation and gallantly invoked the law of supply and demand. And when someone somewhere said no, Milo gave ground grudgingly, valiantly defending, even in retreat, the historical right of free men to pay as much as they had to for the things they needed in order to survive. And that is Milo in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. He is like the embodiment of libertarianism. Well, and it's it's specifically the the noble character of it, where it's seen that this is like morally right. Well, well that's what I mean, but everything. that but that's his that's his moral like like you know, like I said, some people have religion, some people have ambition. Like, you know, the thing that ties him, that, that gives him meaning, mm -hmm. like that is his morality, is the almighty prophet. Yeah. Well, and that he t and also, too, I think within that there's this a mocking of the, of the kind of equilibrium that comes from, you know, when you look at or look at it, you know, uh, um, like economic analysis, especially, you know, neoliberalism, it's and, and you know, 
supply and demand curves meeting equilibrium. You know, there's always this kind of idea that, you know, that's the that's the appropriate outcome that needs to happen from the system well, in general. That, that it's justice. Yes. That, once again, without moral considerations, the, it's, it's, a, it's a numbers thing. And yeah. the more, but it's funny too, because it's, profits are not an equilibrium. I mean, profits can be had or gained through many different ways, but then it becomes that it's more of an equilibrium the, the more of the profit you would make. It's just, it's really, really hilarious, but that he's this, but that, you know, you've rightly pointed out that uh, I think in the past couple conversations we've had that, you know, Milo, I think the reason he kind of catches on is that as you've made your way through the book, uh, first off, people that like the book make, would make your way through it, which is once again, challenging, <laughs> but that Milo's p- position in the first half of the novel is limited at best. Right, yeah. we get we get his humble beginnings of getting back a bedsheet that was stolen, but the person who who the bedsheet was stolen from only gets back half a bedsheet because Milo took a quarter and gave a quarter to Yosarian for his troubles because to that he had to get it for the dates from Yosarian in order to exchange for the stolen bedsheet from the thief. But in order to do that, the guy who the bedsheet was stolen from only gets half a bedsheet back because a quarter of it had to go to Yosarian and another yeah. quarter went to Milo for his troubles. The cost of doing business. Yeah, the cost, cost of, of doing, doing business. business. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then and then one of the major major scenes in the the whole book is the fact that Milo makes a deal with the German that's very profitable. We never know how profitable. But very profitable. It's enough to compensate the government for all of it. Uh, or it's enough to compensate the government for all the losses. But thankfully, because he's a private business and the government is the people and everyone has a share of the syndicate. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's no need to reimburse the government, but go on. Yes, yes. So Milo makes a deal with the Germans that instead of having the Germans bomb Pianosa, bomb the base, that he will just bomb his own people in a transaction. And this causes a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, everyone's a little a little high-strung and, and <laughs> on edge already on the base. And this certainly does not help. But Milo stands firm that that this is what had to be done. Because a contract is a contract, mm-hmm. and you have to stay true to that. So Milo basically destroys most of the base. Like, yep. while everyone's in there, he has the planes come in, he bombs, he strafes, he drops incendiary bombs. It's bombs all in the contract. his own people yeah. as part of a contract that he has with the Germans that is very profitable. But I think it's also worth saying at this point, before we close on it, uh, that Milo hints more than a couple times that he is still for as noble as the market is he is absolutely in this for himself and he is taking these things in directions to help him no he's manipulating everybody through this which is why he's the most frustrating character um uh, there are multiple there is a lot of frustrating characters but man he is frustrating it should also know that milo is not a man of is is a man of principle i mean he will not do business with communists oh yeah no 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 i mean there are allies the soviet unions are allies in world war ii he won't do business with communists no he's massively principled yes Yes. but that doesn't that (laughs) doesn't make him moral yes like he absolutely no he doesn't have any morals he does plenty of things that are deliberately self-interested i mean we know because it's alluded to several times that he he's burying his money somewhere It's the only thing he won't tell Yossarian because he trusts Yossarian because anyone who isn't willing to steal from the country he loves is Mm -hmm. someone who can be trusted with anything. (laughs) Um, But no, it it is hinted that Milo is self-interested in more than just being the agent of capitalism in the book. Mm -hmm. Like he's not, he, he's not pure libertarian id. Like he does care if he makes money. Well, it's not just for the syndicate. Yeah, Absolutely. 
No, but I mean, the syndicate is almost, you know, what he has to do to try it. I mean, that's what he uses as an excuse to exactly. get everyone it to buy him... into his schemes. And, but that's that's exactly my point is yeah. that the, um, is he has to use the syndicate in order to disguise what he's doing in his own principles. Corporations are people, my friend. And this sort of, this ties and, into... And the, this war is going to make him rich. We're, gonna, we're all going to be rich. Oh, yeah. Well, because everyone has a share. Yeah. I mean, and that's the quote that I just read about the, the law of supply and demand. This sort of plays into the unreliable narrator a little bit because when Milo is saying things like this, when the narrator is saying things that Milo would say mm -hmm. in his defense... It feels like the narrator is not being impartial. It feels like Milo told the narrator what to he say. He probably here. did. Yeah. You know, Milo probably manipulated that. He yeah. probably gave him a share in the syndicate, you know, to say nice well, things about and it. And that, that's just as a general extension of the way the narrator works. I mean, the narrator's attitude in any given at any given time, aside from when he's like deliberately describing what people look like, mm -hmm. their thought processes are their own. They're not described in the same way from person to person. Uh, the narrator does seem to jump heads. Yeah, I, I just can, can I maybe just bring up one sure. when I first when I first read Catch Twenty Two. I, I, you know, much to the chagrin of Joseph Heller, I'm sure I very much enjoyed the Milo Minderbinder <laughs> character as well. Um, one of the things that had always struck me, and when I had kind of read some stuff about the ethics of this idea, um, was the idea of the transaction. Milo is a contract is a contract is a contract. Uh, the, the idea that the world can be run through transaction, I think, relates a kind of bizarre and interesting point, which is that, I mean, to Milo's extent, he doesn't want to leave something to chance. Because if something can be left to chance... It, it implies that you there you lacked to find an arrangement to come to, to, to come to an equitable situation for both parties. There's money. To, there's money on the table. And, well, there's there's profit to be made. And if we could maybe just maybe step back with the idea necessarily of the of that it is a profit made specifically in money. I mean, there is a kind of interesting rationale in which it it might have a certain morality. So the idea would be that and and how it was related in one in one article I had read was that. Suppose that two, you know, an army is holding a town and another army wants it, and that you assess, you assume that in taking this town, you will lose twenty thousand soldiers. So the idea would then be that, well, what if we signed a contract with the with the army that's holding the town? What if we agree to kill ten thousand soldiers of our own? We'll kill them, our own soldiers, and then we get the town. Is that not a more moral or just outcome? Right? We get the town. And we are actually ahead 10,000 more soldiers because it would have cost us 20 if we'd have done it without the contract. Yeah, I, don't know. I saw a, a Star Trek episode on this. Yeah. Yeah. So this this idea that kind of runs through these concepts that, you know, is there a kind of Milo, bind, Milo Minder Binder way in which, you know, there can be a, a, a profit that is quote unquote realized within this transactional nature. I mean, why leave war to chance? I can see Milo well, kind of talking like this. Well, but that's that's the thing. That's the reason why I think it's important to bring up that Milo is still self-interested because Milo would manipulate those situations in such a way that it still does not come out as inherently yeah, good. Yeah, and the thing is, it's still it's still not any good for the people he would manipulate on the ground. The he would yeah. manipulate the numbers. Right. He's, well, he's demonstrated a willingness to do so. He is not interested in... Actually, he's almost specifically interested in the black market, not the free market. There we go. Okay. That's what I kind of wanted to hint at here, too, which is that I've seen a lot of defenses of Milo and the idea that you might find this kind of transactional morality that he has as being a way to go move forward. But the book, book drops plenty of hints that he is, yeah. you know, this isn't the case. I mean, oh, it, no, they should have well, shot that's, him. Yeah. Well, and that's, <laughs> that's, that's my, well, that's my you know, opinion that's, on that's that. That's what makes him... 
that's what makes him, you know, the, the sheep of libertarianism makes that kind of weird because he is very much a wolf that way. He doesn't like that Wintergreen and Orr right. are opposing him yeah. in this in this particular way. He's not a pure I mean he's he's not a pref uh, he's not a pure free marketer. He would rather own everything, which yeah. he demonstrates with the cotton. And he almost does by the end of yeah. it. I mean, he's what through some mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, he's like the caliph of Iran, and he's <laughs> the mayor of. Yeah, well, I, the, he moves his way into a lot of different societies. Well, and I think that if if we're gonna maybe mention the the movie for the first time, I mean, the movie takes a particular view on Milo and his philosophy in general, an exceptionally dark one. Yes, exactly. And I think that more importantly, it kind of relays the idea that Mar- that Milo. While his pretense of the of the free market is there, uh, that Milo is perhaps more of a fascist in well, his because ideology. He, because at the end of the day, his drive for profits oppresses a lot of people. And also, too, there's this and idea And he has of, no regard for that. Well, that everything links together as well. One of the kind of nature of fascism is that there's a kind of corporatist understanding of the body politic, right? And the, the idea that... You know, everything is linked to the other. You know, we are all organs in the, in the in the body of the state, and we all have roles to perform. But that all service, you know, the brain or the head or the decision making apparatus, you know, signified through one or another by an individual, right? Milo Minderbinder, which it should be funny too that that the he, the planes he buys, he act, they have these like slogans like liberty and justice, and he whites them all out to put his own symbol over cross mm-hmm. of them. I mean, yeah. like it's it's very distinct that there this is. You know, underneath the tones of this, a much darker vision of self-interest, not as a, once again, as good for all, but primarily good for one. And if I gotta have it good for all, it'll happen. But if I can justify it, it'll be mostly good for one. No, he is, he is an oppressor. Yes. I mean... Well, and he's specifically... And and he uses the transactional thing to try to kind of fool you into the fact that he is a serious oppressor. Well, yeah, and is. He only has one thing that holds him back. He has to be able to point to somewhere in the wealth of nations where what he's saying is justified, independent of any other context. Like, it's essentially, as long as it, whatever he's saying is a precept of the free market, disres- disregarding any other variables, he will use that as his point of logic and his stepping stone to make the rest of his argument. He's mm-hmm. exceptionally calculated that way. It's how he does his first transaction. He um he gets a bunch he gets a bunch of prunes, I think it is, or pitted dates yes. from Yosarian to trade with a crazy guy who doesn't speak English and gets into a transaction with that person for the blanket, but then takes the blanket because he because um the crazy person who does not know their language doesn't understand English, didn't understand the transaction. Mm -hmm. So Milo, I mean, Milo is not doing this in the spirit of capitalism. He is breaking this down in such a way that he can look at any point in time in this transaction, and it's all good, even though the whole thing is in seriously bad faith. I forget how it happens, Mm -hmm. but he ends up with both the blanket and the dates. Yes, because he he grabs the blanket, Mm -hmm. um, the other person doesn't understand the transaction, but Milo hinted that this maybe is what they were trying to do, and then when he tries to get the blanket, when the madman tries to get the blanket back, Milo hits him with a club. Yes, okay, there, Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because the transaction was honored. Yes. And he doesn't even speak our language, so... so he's a foreigner. It doesn't matter, yeah. 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 So I, I think that in the end, you know, we do get this sense of, like, how he's looked at and, and more importantly, the role that he plays in a larger sense. It's, it's very cool, too, because the thing that you looked at is the danger... The way that you characterized it is the danger that I think a lot of people approach it, which is that they take kind of, they take kind of one 
initial perspective rather than looking at the whole component of yeah. you know Milo's career. And like I said, I think the movie does a good job in really emphasizing that there is a, a very, very dark nature to Milo Minderbinder uh, and his philosophy and, and, and his place in the novel as well. Well, but and that that dis that disingenuous character, that's, again, that's perfectly Catch-22. That's yeah. the dualism. You look at it from this perspective, you take a hop over, and then you look back, and you go, oh, now we can move this way. Right. And you just, you you reason your way out one step at a time. It's uh, casuistic. Yes. To a degree. Um, Whose pick is next? I don't know, man. What are we doing here? I don't know, man. Oh, man, there's so many good characters here. Who's the You're fast up. one? Oh, I'm I up? picked. I picked. I picked. You up got Milo. Milo. Oh hell, let me see this on bitch real quick. Milo, Doc, Nately, Shyskuff, Snowden. I mean, I, I I would like to maybe could we talk about Snowden and the kind of break that that happens with the Osarian? I mean, it's um, a real turning point. Yeah, I mean, do we want to get to that now, or is that like not a character to talk about or so? I mean, it seems like it'd be the last one to talk about. Okay, cool. Well, then if we're not if we're not ready to hit there yet. Um, I don't think so. I I like talking about major major. Major, major. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> major, major, major. 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 Yes. yes. Promoted is, thus. Yes, promoted thusly. Uh, he's lieutenant. Like a computer not system. A not a major. A joke. But, yeah, okay. So, obviously, you can imagine that a person who has a given name of major, major, major uh, would have some difficulties in life. But it didn't start off this way. It turns out that, I guess, his father was rather devious and clever. Uh, yeah, Major Major's is, father is... This is part of the, the brilliant absurdity of this book. Yeah. Like, this character really embodies some of the great absurdity that is strung throughout the book that makes it so enjoyable. Well, and, and Major Major's father in particular, I'm not going to read this immediately, I'm just saying. I'm just I know that you wanted to discuss it, his, his father Major Major's fun... Major Major's father is one of the only characters that outside of the war has this horribly selfish perspective like we were talking about with Milo where he's willing he's to very similar in where a way. he's he's got a massive degree of cognitive dissonance and major 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 is a direct <laughs> product of this what would normally at the beginning of the book up to the and frankly up to this point in the book is seen as just kind of the silly nonsense that these people get up to that they have all these, in, these internal contradictions and yes. that's dumb mm -hmm. and like all the Major, major, major is major. major is the product of someone who lives by this cognitive dissonance. Yes, and what it did to him is horrible. Yeah, like Major Major's father is. I mean, I, I may as well just do it. Quote: Major Major's father was a sober, God-fearing man whose idea of a good joke was to lie about his age. <laughs> he was a long-limbed farmer, a God-fearing, freedom-loving, law-abiding, rugged individualist who held that federal aid to anyone but farmers was creeping socialism. <laughs> he advocated thrift and hard work and disapproved of loose women who turned him down. <laughs> His specialty was alfalfa, and he made a good thing out of not growing any. The government paid him well for every bushel of alfalfa he did not grow. The more alfalfa he did not grow, the more money the government gave him, and he spent every penny he didn't earn on new land to increase the amount of alfalfa he did not produce. Major Major's father worked without rest at not growing alfalfa. On long winter evenings, he remained indoors and did not mend harness, and he sprang out of bed at the crack of noon every day just to make certain that the chores would not be done. He invested in land wisely and soon was not growing more alfalfa than any other man in the country. Neighbors sought him out for advice on all subjects, for he had made much money and was therefore wise. Mm -hmm. As ye sow, so shall ye reap, he counseled one and all, and everyone said, Amen. Yeah. He sounds like modern-day Republican to me. Yeah, he is, really. He is, <laughs> and just the product of 
what he has done in the real world with this is, I mean, Major Major is... Yeah, so Major Major is is one of the characters, like, this is one of the guys that came into the war broken and maneuvering within the system <laughs> is still not working for him. Like, he's just, he's had a hard time from the get-go. His dad actually, wasn't it, waited till the mom died yes. so that he could name Major 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 that name. He, he waited till the mom died and then had the birth certificate surreptitiously created and ended up giving him this horrible name, which then the military actually, in in a, a comment, I think, where it says, even the computer system that, that yeah, generates... Yeah, an IBM machine with a sense of humor, humor promoted yes. him to major. Well, and it, it should be said, too, that... And well, he even a killed his mom. Yeah. Well, yeah. But it also should be said, too, that as he grows up, he thinks he has another name. He thinks he's, like, Clevin Major or Cleveland Caleb? Major. Caleb. Caleb. Caleb Major. And then it turns out when he goes to school, his official name yeah. gets released to him, and everybody shuns him because he's someone... He, he said he was some someone he wasn't. And, then and he the was end, never able to find a friend after that, and but, he desperately needed one. But it was funny because it's not only that everyone else is suspicious of someone who refers to himself as a different but then all of a sudden Major Major doesn't even know who he is anymore. Like yeah. he's not Caleb Major he's someone else. He's Major Major. And the sense of like isolation and loneliness that comes from this character is I think a good kind of crux as well because he is affected by the world and this logic of Catch-22 in yeah. a very very in a way that is almost seemingly debilitating and well, like and, I said, it's, been, it's been debilitating for him his whole life, where a lot of these people are just now experiencing yes. <laughs> it after three years of this war. Like, this guy has been suffering under this no, he is, forever. He's, he's been a casualty of it forever, and he is he's described as being highly nonconformist for doing everything people tell him to do. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is massively debilitating, and we know this because Major Major does everything he is supposed to do and he is always upbeat, and he always tries to make friends, and the world wants nothing to do with this upbeat, you know, cheerful attitude. Right. Like, his hope is just never repaid. Yes. No, he's 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 a very tragic character. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, and it's... Who refuses to see anyone in his office. Yes, so I will only see them when I'm not in, and then yeah. you can see me. So when you're not in, well, then you can send them in. Yes. Yeah. What the hell is going on here? Which, by the way, Yosarian... Only one who can break the spell. Yes. Well, because he, because Major Major, in order to avoid being seen by his own men, which means going, being led into their office, so he doesn't have to pass by people waiting for him. He mm. sneaks out the window and then finds a way into a trench that he then like rub, 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 runs his way along in, in order disguise, to get to there. In a wears, disguise, he wears dark glasses and a mustache so that nobody can recognize him. <laughs> and it's just, it's just strange because, like, once again, the more. You know, he, he feels the world is put upon him and people treat him strangely, so he wants to be avoided, which, of course, makes people treat him even more like yeah. he's acting strangely. But then when he doesn't act strangely, he finds that there's just something innately about him, primarily that he looks exactly like Henry Fonda, that just <laughs> makes people even think that he actually isn't major, 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 but in fact, Henry Fonda in And disguise. then they still hate him for lying about the fact that he's Henry Fonda. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's just, he cannot escape from this whole this absurd situation. And... I mean, his his, his his desire to want to avoid detection almost, right? His desire to want to be affected by this, uh, the fact that he has no ambition, I mean, is kind of symptomatic of, of a larger extent. I mean, he does have a certain Yosarian-ness about him, but yet he is almost continually thrust upon by circumstance to continue to do more and to have more done to him. And 
I, like you said, it is fairly tragic. I mean, if it isn't, if it wasn't so funny, it would almost be really, really that's sad. That's part oh, of the I, brilliance of the book. Yeah. The book is is tragically hilarious. Oh, I think Major Major's entirely tragedy. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty tragic. Uh, so let's continue on here. What do we got next? Uh, we can talk about Major <coughs> DeCoverly. Mm-mm. Yeah, Major Blank to Coverly. What? Yeah. Oh God, he didn't make the list. What? Eh, whatever. Well, he's pretty, he's, pretty he's, easy. he's he's a little side. Well, character. the reason he's Major Blank to Coverly is that everyone is terrified to ask him his first name. <laughs> so he's just Major Blank to Coverly. And he is he is the uh, Stonewall Jackson. I guess would be the place yeah. to start. He is he is the icon of America over there. He's a grizzled old man who talks in uh, caveman language practically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his only apparent roles are to pitch horseshoes mm-hmm. and lead parades through conquered towns. Yes, that's that's about the extent. It's a true of military his... man. Yeah. Well, no, but uh, but like you said, he has this kind of archetypal uh, sense of what a, being an American is, and that terrifies everyone around him. <laughs> yeah. He's so American, he actually frightens every all of the Americans around him, including people above him yes. in the chain of command. Oh, because yeah, exactly. Because yeah. they, you know, everyone's afraid to actually kind of approach him because of what he might do, and yet Milo is one of the only characters that will. Yeah, but oh, even God. he will not ask his name. No. Oh God, that was an easy one. Well, okay, so I wanted to talk about who I, if Yossarian is our anti-hero, Good. I have, I find Orr, who is one of the pilots, mm-hmm. to be the hero here. So in this, <laughs> in this grand scheme of, uh, you know, Pianosa and flying missions and being stuck in this irrational system that's trying to kill you, there is Orr. Yossarian thinks Orr is an idiot. Yeah. Um, Are they roommates as well? Yeah, yes, they share yes. a tent together. Yeah. They share a tent. You'll see, he, or infuriates Yosarian. He <laughs> thinks he is an idiot. But here's the thing. Or actually gets out of this thing alive. Or is so... He's so dense that he actually... I feel like... I feel like Or is, or is the hero because he is so unaffected in a sense, by the system, because he's so in his own head, and he has so many skills, and he has so many little things that he's focusing on and thinking about, that he doesn't let the system get it down, and even better, he finds a way to get to Sweden, which means he can sit out of the whole war, which is basically the answer Yossarian's looking for. Like, Yossarian wants to figure out a way to get out of his situation, and he never finds it, and he thinks Orr's an idiot, but Orr's the one that finds a way out. Yes. Like, he's the one that comes out, I think, the most unscathed out of all of them, and part of it is the ignorance that Yossarian sees in him. But I feel like it's more of a, if I made Birdman, it's more of a virtue of ignorance. Nice, nice. <laughs> no, it's, but that, I mean, that's... And that's or, what saves him. Or is right under Yossarian's nose at all times. I mean, or constantly messes around with a, uh, a lantern or a... What, a little is, stove. A stove, there we go. He's constantly messing around with that, or is constantly shot down during missions, seems like deliberately. And well, we, Yossarian... we find out that it, it is deliberate, yeah. because he's practicing. Yes. Yeah, but the Yossarian doesn't know that, because Orr does no. not say anything directly. Orr and Yossarian actually tend to, even though Yossarian gets annoyed at him sometimes, they actually get along pretty well, um, just because it's actually a weird editorial note, uh, the narration by J.O. Sanders that I listened to, uh, while very, very good a lot of the time, I think doesn't inflect Yossarian and Orr correctly based on the words around it 
Okay. The, uh, there's, it seems like Yossarian is angrier at Orr in I those feel, scenes yeah. than he actually is. He's just, like, frustrated because he doesn't understand Orr. He, like... And Yosarian's I, I okay with his actually toys around with his mind games, and on occasion Yosarian, you know, uh, or has a thing where he puts crab apples in his cheeks, <laughs> and Yosarian keeps trying to get him to say why he puts crab apples in his cheeks, and or is just a master MacGyver of yeah. figuring out how to distort the semantics of his sentences so that he doesn't ever actually well, answer his actually, question. Actually, that's a good point. He's a MacGyver of everything because the one okay. So this Litcrit book I said I, I read after I had determined that I think Orr is the hero in this book, it went on to say that Orr Orr exists outside the system. Right. Um and I don't know if I totally totally buy that. And he brings up that point because Orr does not have a chapter name after him. Uh, but the thing uh. is the Havermeyer chapter that doesn't bring up Havermeyer is all about him and is all about Yosarian and Orr because right. that's when he's fixing right. the little yeah. the little stove. And and Yosarian is incensed by all of these little MacGyver skills that Orr has because he doesn't understand them and he thinks that they're all useless and it infuriates him like he doesn't understand but here at the end of the day like or had a plan well that <laughs> well that he and it worked well that's just it it's it's that Yosarian I think is intensely put off by the fact that they're going through the same situation and yet or seems to have so a unaffected kind of, by yeah, it yeah he seems he seems a little bit above it all but i mean once again it should it should just be hilarious that you know, Orr essentially wins or succeeds in the novel because he fails so continuously at the assignment to him, which is to be a pilot and not crash your plane. I mean, yeah. the, the very thing that makes him successful in the larger scheme of the book is exactly because he's so good at failing in his but job. But what's great, and, and he keeps he keeps hinting at this to Yosarian, he's like, why won't you fly with me? Because yeah, here's the thing. You're crazy though, not to fly with me. Even though Orr crashes the plane almost every time every it goes time. out, nobody ever dies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's a resourceful guy. No, and when when Orr, at the very end of the book, yeah. when um, Yosarian finally learns that Orr actually made it to Sweden, uh, he's talking with Danby when it happens, and uh, he finally comes around and says, uh, why wouldn't I listen? He invited me along, and I wouldn't go with him. Danby, Danby, bring me buck teeth, too, and a valve to fix, and a stupid look of innocence that no one would ever suspect of any cleverness. I'll need them all. Yeah. So, so Orr is my hero. Worthy of admiration. <laughs> no, he, he finds just a great way to, kind of, like I said, to react to this, and then once, you know, Heller in his classic Catch-22-ness, he succeeds because he fails so often. Yes. It's so, it is so brilliant. And also, he has one of my favorite insults in the whole book, uh, which is against Appleby, who he says has flies in his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and he just says, well, he can't see them because he's got flies in his eyes. And the, the phrase flies in his eyes comes like gets re repeated so often in that little section. Yeah. And then uh, I think one of the other guys comes up and he's eating peanut brittle. And, and yeah. he's like, well, or says you have flies in your eyes. And he goes, I'd rather have flies in my eyes than peanut brittle all over my face. <laughs> <laughs> Continually like going back and forth through this. Yeah. But or... You know, who has this, I think, and, and also I wanted to kind of bring that up because I think Orr, it's, I don't know if this is exactly the case, but he just seemed to be, like I said, preoccupied or even at play. Like, he he gets this, and he's, you know, the way that he kind of just, I think he frustrates Yosarian because he's fucking with him, like, yeah. a little bit of the time. Like, well, he, he is fucking with, with him, and like I said, Yosarian doesn't understand, like, all of this. Right. You know, because what, what is the... You know, the first, like, long introduction with, with Orr and Yosarian is when 
or is fixing the stove. And he talks about how he takes the entire stove apart, analyzes every single piece and puts it back together and goes through this process multiple times without ever losing focus or concentration. Right. And like Yosarian just does not even understand how this guy's head works. Right. Which is why he just thinks he's an idiot. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, yeah, and that's brought up several... T- I was trying to find the quote where Yosarian's like uh, or was possessed of a an indomitable spirit and a million talents that would keep him in a low Lower income compl- bracket yes, for the yes. rest of his life. <laughs> that, that was that's one of my favorite lines yeah. in the book. Yeah. <laughs> he can measure things with a ruler. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, this, you know that was a great section. Okay. So that that's my hero. I don't know if you guys have. Who, no. who do you think you're? Who are you guys' heroes well, in the? Uh... Oh, God Almighty! I mean, I like I like Clevenger. Yeah, uh, no, Clevenger. Okay, Clevenger is the is this foible that gets put against Yos- Yosarian, and um, they have these arguments, which is that Clevenger is the. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Clevenger is, disappears in the cloud, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So Clevenger has these ideas of being highly moralistic, and you know, once again, realizes he's in a war, but has this. You know, really creates the kind of. The, the almost the patriotic arguments against Yosarian's point, which is that they're trying He's to kill enlightened. me. Yeah, well, he but he also I think wants to you know if you do your job, you know there are there are your common soldiers on the ground. They'll, they'll you'll help them out. You'll we'll be ending the war sooner. Like this this needs to be an important component of your thinking about how you're reacting to the situation. And you know, people have to die. People will die. And he's like, yes. Why does it have to be me? You know, like, yeah. is this answer, which once again from you know Yosarian, who we could argue is intensely solipsistic, which I'll get to that later. Um, but let you know, Clevenger has this real approach to him. But I mean, any, any other thoughts on Clevenger before I get to you know before we get to how he how he dies? I mean, if he does at all, it's well. The Clevenger's most the like biggest point with Clevenger is that he's set up in this ridiculous trial in which he's... Oh, God, in training yeah. with Shyskov. Yeah, 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 so before he even gets to Pianosa, he is he is put up on trial. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I have I have that. Oh, and David has, has this section or, bookmarked. Uh, I don't have that specific one, but uh, the case against Clevenger was open and shut. The only thing missing was something to charge him exactly. with. Exactly, <laughs> which... Which and this this theme this theme comes up a couple of times because there's a there's a few people that go through trials where they're not actually charged with anything oh but they're God. they're but, guilty. But you can imagine why. I mean, in his introduction, <laughs> the introduction to Clevenger, he was a very uh, quote he was a very serious, very earnest, and very conscientious dope. It was impossible to go to a movie with him without getting involved afterward in a discussion on empathy, Aristotle. Universal's messages and the obligations of the cinema as an art form in a materialistic society. Oh my God. Coincidence? I think not. Um, am, I, am I Clevenger, guys? Girl, oh, yeah. I mean, uh, oh, no. Girls, girls he took to the theater had to wait until the first intermission to find out from him whether or not they were seeing a good or bad play, and then found out at once. <laughs> he was a militant idealist who crusaded against racial bigotry, by growing faint in its presence. He knew everything about literature except how to enjoy, enjoy it. it. Yeah. <laughs> this is the person we're dealing with here. The high-minded individual yes. of every era. Well, and that, but also, too, that, you know, in, in, in a weird sense where, you know, parts of the novel do just, you know, almost descend into this kind of metaphysical or magical reality that happens. Uh, Clevenger's plane, as he flies into a cloud, 
disappears. He just it disappears. Just, it's just gone. <laughs> he flies into a cl- cloud, and that's the description. Like you don't want to end up like Clevenger, who flew into that cloud. And that's just supposed to mean and, something yeah. to us all. Like, you yeah. know, like he ascended above a certain plane or something. But yeah, but like that that idea within Clevenger, I think, is, you know, really, really awesome. And his sections in the novel, I think, are very good because it I think it serves an important point to like, once again, there he hints of something outside of this overall uh, of this overall war. He hints of a world outside Catch Twenty Two that that most mirrors our own to a certain extent, and yet but he's an idiot within it. Yes, exactly. He's, so he's highly educated outside the system, but in the system, well, he's, I mean, he doesn't have anything to stand well, on. Well, and it's it's very very much funny because I think it typifies a lot of like the joke we have about political scientists, <laughs> where you know we study politics and yet we're so bad at politics. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like very Clevenger. Yes, you are. You are Clevenger. Yeah. <laughs> When didn't you say we couldn't punish you? <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Clevenger I... meets his match. In yeah, so there, there, there's actually a couple. Yeah, there's a couple parts that that they get into these trials where they're guilty but not actually charged with anything. Mm-hmm. Tapman. It's a lot of accusation and finger pointing. Yeah, yeah. Tapman gets gets caught up in one oh, of those. Oh, where was? Oh, uh, wanna. <laughs> Well, that also one you get, fucking line in that. You get the so thing off, oftentimes where because it does play a lot on the kind of logic of you know having to prove a, a uh, prove a negative. Yeah. You know, where, where, where oh, yeah. didn't you say what you hadn't done, and you're like, well, well, that's, it, it, well, well, that's how that's how unreasonable people get one over on reasonable people in rational situations in this book is by affirming negatives. Yes, exactly. <laughs> when didn't you say it? I, yeah. I, I didn't say it all the time. No. Shoot. When specifically didn't you say this? Oh yeah. No. It's uh. We asked you to write your name in your own handwriting, and you didn't do it. But of course I did. In whose handwriting did I write it if not my own? In somebody else's. Whose? That's just what we're going to find out. <laughs> like, there's the trial with the chaplain. Because yeah. Clevenger, Clevenger is reasonable within, again, an enlightened, Harvard-educated sense where no one can get past him with truly logical arguments, so he just gets evaded. The chaplain, in the same way, is amiable and reasonable in a way that most of the other characters aren't, and as a result gets pushed around like nobody's business, But and that's exactly why he, uh, that's why, uh, thankfully nothing happens to the good chaplain after mm-hmm. this uh, this particular he meeting. He wants so much to believe in he's, the God that he preaches about. Yeah. He's mad, <laughs> he's really... Really having a hard time finding him anywhere. Yeah. Washington Irving. No, the, um, we accuse you also of the commission of crimes and infractions we don't even know about yet, guilty or innocent. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, I mean, their logic behind that is pretty easy. Uh, of course he's guilty. If they're his crimes and infractions, he must have committed them. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, that kind of rationale works heavily throughout the book and afflicts many of the characters throughout. Um, okay, how are, how are we doing here, guys? What? Oh, we're an hour and a half in. We okay. can probably round... Take a breather. Yeah, well, I mean, either take a breather or just round through uh, any other characters we want to talk about well, shortly. Yeah, let's, I mean, let's go ahead and just, I mean, David, you got the notes there. I've, um, you know, I've kind of got, so I wanted to talk, get to the movie, and I had some additional yeah. points to kind of lead into oh, the just, Snowden thing just, as well. One of my, yeah, no, I, I want to do this, I'll do this one last one, oh, no, take, and then yeah, we'll, uh, we all got, we got There's three. a lot of characters, so, I mean, so, we covered like a quarter of them probably, One of my that. Yeah, Jesus, there's so, so many. I know, if we gotta get something in, though, like, what, what we want in? Didn't even talk about Chief White Half-Oat, but the, <laughs> <laughs> so they, they found oil and immediately kicked him off the <laughs> Read this book, this book's amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, always remember... Nately's mother had reminded him frequently 
that you are innately. You are not a Vanderbilt whose fortune was made by a vulgar tugboat captain or a Rockefeller whose wealth was amassed through unscrupulous speculations in crude petroleum or a Reynolds or Duke whose income was derived from the sale to the unsuspecting public of products containing cancer-causing resins and tars. And you are certainly not an Astor whose family, I believe, still lets rooms. No, you are innately, and the Nateleys have never done anything for their money. <laughs> oh, poor it's, naive Nately. It's one of my favorite. Oh. I, I, love, uh, I love that line. Old money is better than new money. I like that he's upset that the old man doesn't wear Brooks Brothers shirt. Yes. Oh, like God. There's... <laughs> this book's so good. We didn't even talk about the old man. The old man. The old man is... He's only in one scene, but it's a it's a good one. It's a good scene. I think he's in two, but, like, the the one relevant yeah. scene. Where, he's old man. Yeah, he's a turncoat and old... Was it? Uh, it's better to die. Okay, so Nately, <laughs> Nately tries to give a principle because there's two things in that Nately conversation that I really love. We had re- referred to one in the because uh, we were in the middle of it for Wages of Fear. Um, it was two. So Nately's having a conversation with the old man who around. I don't know if he runs or is around the whorehouse that houses the whore that Nately's in love with, who won't pay any attention to him. Which uh, of course is <laughs> oh god, I love this book. So he's um. <laughs> So Nately's having this discussion uh, with this old man, and uh, I think the, the book here refers to it as the ethic of survival, right? Yes, is what the old man yes, represents. Yes, he is the ethic of survival. Yeah. And so Nately is trying to say that there is this, that there, you need to take a principled stand on the side of freedom. And the old man, I think, has an excellent case, which is that the principle, if the principled side of freedom gets you killed, it is very hard to be free after you are dead. Oh, he's massively practical. Yes. He's, yeah. he's lived to be 107. Yes. And so I think that, you know, there is this kind of sense where, you know, Nately clearly gives the the best idea, which is that it is better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. And the man reverses it in the most clever way. He says, no, it is better to live on your feet than to die on your knees. And I think that's an important point we have to take away from this. Oh, this is a beautiful reversal. Yeah, no, it's very clever because you, you think that it will be just the straight reversal of dying on, you'd rather live on your knees than die on your feet. No, 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 no. Like, no. You're, you are missing the overall point within this. But also, too, that, I mean, the man, the old man kind of does have, you know, he lives in, in a whorehouse. He likes good-looking women around him. I think he is drinking during this as well. He does have Most this... Most likely. Yeah, this kind of... This Bacchanalian, you know, hedonistic yeah. kind of approach to the thing, too. But that it's also eminently practical to be and live this way. Right? He has look these, how far it's gotten him. Well, and not yeah. only that, but, it, you know, Italy will ex- will continue to exist after this because we are so weak, right? And yeah. that is what makes us so strong. This, this <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. just an effusion of the overall con- concepts so emboldened and, excuse me, emblazoned on this one character as he argues with this innocent naive representation of the genteel ideals that, once again, I don't think you've reconciled exactly what it would take to achieve them. Because Nately, for one, had never had to suffer to achieve them in the first place. No, and that's... Nately says, don't you have any principles? And the old man says, of course not. (laughs) 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 No, it's... Oh, man. And the old man man represents this, this form of anti-idealism in such a way that he is uh, he may not know major <laughs> the coverly's first name but he is the only person who does anything to impact 
um, the Coverly during the book, he actually puts out his eye. Yes. Yes. So this old man can touch those idealists where it hurts. Right. In a way that no one else can even come close to. Well, and and also, uh, if we wanted to maybe hit on this, but I liked, I really liked the exchange, which we had talked previously, but I want to mention it again, uh, is the idea in the relativity of of being old, which is being defined by being close to death. And, yeah. you know, the idea that... That's you know, Dunbar's yeah, idea. Yeah, that's Dunbar, once again, kind of plays into this. Oh, yes, because Snowden, uh, you know... Yosarian talks about how Snowden, Snowden was such an old man, mm-hmm. and uh, his whore's like, well, you know, but he was so young. And he's like, well, you don't get any older than, or like, Wait, but he's dead. Yeah. So how you do don't you get, get any older at that age? You don't get any age. older than yeah. that. So it's it's so funny that, you know, this, 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 rel- this relativistic idea, which I think, once again, revolves around this conception of being in a horrible position, right? Because we, we, the way we started this off was, it, which is that you know, those those bastards are trying to kill me, and the response to Yosarian is that they're trying to kill everybody. And what difference does that make? Like, yeah. what difference does that make that they're? Tra- I mean, I'm the one who's going to die with everyone yeah. else. Like, it does me no good if I die singularly or we all die together. And you know that that extreme relativistic approach to something that becomes so dehumanized. Like the way we talk about it, right? The way we we rationalize doing terrible things to other people in war, right? Ideals, values, morality, you know, uh, uh, dehumanization, humor—all of these things are are consistently broken down in this novel. And yeah. like I said, by the end of it, by the last quarter of the book, I mean, like I said, shit gets real. Rubber hits the road. Yeah, no, this we are reminded. No, I was that we starting are in to war. get really depressed over the weekend. Oh no, when Heller, I it up. And and it's it's very cool because if you you as you follow your way through it, it you know you are you're around it. You know, like th- bad things happen, and the way that it's presented, like Snowden died because Snowden lost his guts, and. You know, you get this sense, like, well, is he kind of referring to the idea that he was that he was cowardice or that he died of cowardice? And no, that it is, in fact, literal, horribly, horribly literal. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, and, like, that was, that's another, to start moving toward the movie. I the mean, movie handled the stone part excellently, I, I didn't think I didn't think it did. You didn't I liked, think so? I no. liked the way okay. it, no, it, it, I, it cut through it. The way, the way it is described is grotesque in the book in a way that I didn't, I, I don't know. The movie's also from 1970, so you have to consider the, you yeah, know. Yeah, the, the limits of seeing guts. Yeah. Is, uh, no, it? I mean, the the description in the book is literally, like, cringeworthy yeah. in the way that it's described. Uh, the thing I was going to get to bef- right before we get to Snowden, since okay, cool. it seems like we're going there. Yosarian essentially. we're going to end with him? I was just, I just well, think it's... Well, it makes sense, too, yeah. just because it's solemn in a way that, again, if we're going to talk about the movie, the movie absolutely capitalizes on the dark side of this more than the humorous side yes, of this. Yes, exactly. And so I think it kind of leads into yeah. Yeah. moving towards the end of the book, still keeping themes alive, comparing it to the movie. Go ahead, David. Yeah, but the, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it, it's, before we, uh, before Yosarian finally, before the narrator, I guess, finally tells us what happened to Snowden in gruesome detail, Yosarian goes AWOL to Rome after it has been thoroughly sacked and is essentially in hell contemplating <laughs> what what the world could really be worth if this is what the world is like. It's and he isn't what we have done. Yeah, well and what you know, what what can we do? Yes, I, it's yeah, like yeah, he, no. <laughs> he gets farther than that. I mean he's talking 
you know, he's he has a lot of horrible. Oh, uh, don't. Well, there's you know, not there's even a, sure where to start. There's a guy that. beating a dog. There's like some. There's like a younger girl like stealing something from an older woman that's running after her. There's someone beating a child. There's yeah, like no. just all this horrible stuff going on. No, Yos- and Yosarian, on top of all, uh, on top of seeing all this horrible stuff, he actually, in the same way that people don't like the chaplain because he makes them feel uncomfortable because yes. of what Yosarian is mad at these people for making him think about how horrible their lives are. Yes. Like, and that just it's like that bad. Like he calls he calls like the mothers who are running through the street away from the MPs cows. Yeah. Like, and just all this stuff, and like those thought he hates those thoughts so much that he hates them for making him think them um and then he gets into what may be the um you know it's it's sort of the it doesn't actually bring up catch 22 but it's the last reference to catch 22 in a way it's the last spiritual reference to it where he has a litany of questions that fit that perfect duality in it uh how many families hungered for food they couldn't afford to buy how many hearts were broken how many suicides would take place that same night how many people would go insane how many cockroaches and landlords would triumph? How many winners were losers, successes, failures, rich men, poor men? How many wise guys were stupid? How many happy endings were unhappy endings? How many honest men were liars, brave men, cowards, loyal men, traitors? How many sainted men were corrupt? How many men in positions of trust had sold their souls to blackguards for petty cash? How many had never had souls? How many straight and narrow paths were crooked paths? How many best families were worst families, and how many good people were bad people? Mm-hmm. Like this, and that—that—that's the gravest, starkest example of a catch twenty-two, of people appearing one way and being, being another, darkly. just just laying it out in a litany, um, in the middle of this madness. Yes. Well, that, and but also when you when you're not experiencing directly the madness, the idea that once again. Asking those questions at Pianosa, where their base is, right? That's you're not supposed to do that. Don't worry about it, Yasarian. Yeah. Like this isn't what we're here to solve. You know, this isn't what we're here to do. Yeah, he's not. Be, the conversation is not being directed by these idealists at this point. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, that, it's not our place to question almost. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not. This isn't. But well, whose place is it? Is there someone out there asking these questions within these things? And it, I think it. Go ahead. Oh, Dun, no, Dunbar refers to one one time. Brings it up. Uh, where the hell was it? But I think that if you, just to get back on, yeah, no, a, no, on a larger going, point, keep, no, keep going. Because <laughs> I think I'll that oh, I think that you know Heller's kind of once again the way that Catch Twenty Two is all consuming. There is only one catch, and it is Catch Twenty Two. And it's the best catch we got. Yeah, it's the best there is. So <laughs> you've got this. You can't get out of this. And that you know once again this idea of it's not our place to ask these questions. Well, whose place is it? And that we do have an odd sense here that you know I think that in a larger sense this. You know, Heller's kind of critiquing, you know, American culture within this to a certain extent, right? You talked about this being McCarthyism where there is this sense that, you know, you there is the right way to be an American and any deviation from that Captain is... Captain Black, like, is McCarthy. Yeah, is, yeah. is very under, undermining the very values in which we're fighting for here. And yet, once again, the idea that being an American me- means being not skeptical or more importantly, being only being skeptical in the right way yeah. is, of course, the very under... You know, the very logic of how that thing is supposed to be progressing. And it's just... You know, the, the way that he kind of de-emphasizes this, uh, excuse me, the way that he kind of emphasizes this approach with, with that last little bit, because that is a an important, you know, emotional climax in the, in the novel yeah. in general, and that he chooses to have those kinds of, those thoughts and those ideas. And more importantly, and I just want to emphasize on this as well, 
that continual notion that, once again, Cathcart hates people who puts them in awkward situations, that several other times we'd seen people being frustrated or angered by someone who reminds them of something outside of the world they're trying to, to, to develop or build around themselves. Once this intrusion comes in, they don't reflect back that this affects them personally, but they hate the other person for forcing them to think that yes. way. And in that sense, I've just kind of had this realization that, you know, the way that in our, our culture today we talk about victim blaming, that is its most essence that is at its most essence. We don't. We, it's now passe to talk about you know a woman who raped was raped deserved it because she dressed a certain way. That's passe, and we don't acknowledge that anymore. Now we tend to reserve that for people who r remind us of how we might not be as open-minded as we thought we had been, as open to ideas of sexuality than we might have thought we were, as you know maybe looking at the fact that maybe we need certain social programs to help address poverty because they haven't gone far enough. Like, haven't we done enough already? <laughs> kind of an approach. And once again, I think that's kind of catch-22 like logic, where there's this inability or in, this inability or a lack of desire to kind of ask those kinds of questions about well, where there's the system a lack we live of, in. Yeah, and, and the discomfort kind of, like, of having to move the goalposts. There we go, yeah. Yeah, there's a discomfort. And there is kind of like a general lack of empathy that runs throughout the book to a certain extent. Well, yeah, to, to not want to go there to, ask yeah. those, to answer those questions. Yeah. Yeah, the, the line I was looking for... Um, very, very near the front of the book. After all of that, uh, yeah. So we've, after, we've gone from the extreme end of the end of the book where David was reading that but, quote. But it goes, you know, the idea of someone somewhere like this ethereal mass is that is dictating what is right or just and is planting these ideas in everyone's head. Dunbar, and this may be the line that gets him disappeared in the first place. Uh, they were talking to the Texan who everybody hates yes. because he wants to give more votes to uh, good people. Yosarian um, goes, uh, he was talking about the chaplain. Wasn't he sweet, said Yosarian? Maybe they should give him three votes. And then Dunbar says, who's they? He demands suspiciously. And that's dropped immediately. Yeah. There, after that, it goes into a description of a different part of the ward. Dunbar just drops that line. And so Dunbar then, got too close to the they, yeah. and they done disappeared Dunbar. <laughs> yeah, no, and then after that, after the the first philosophical climax of the book in in that set of dual, that, that litany of questions, then Snowden happens. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this Snowden, I'm not even sure where to specifically address it, Ryan. So... On, a, on one of these bombing runs, uh, over Avignon in particular, I, I believe Avignon, it is. Yeah, Avignon, yeah. which is early on in the book. Uh, yeah, chronologically, it's one of the first things that happens. Yes, and but not one of the first things that's revealed. And it is also kind of key moment in the book because this this moment kind of happens several times throughout the book. And as you said, the movie picked it up as a main device yeah. um, in, in terms of organizing yeah, the narrative they, they as well. Yeah, they used it as a main focus as to kind of get the theme across. Yeah. And, and essentially what happens is is that the the plane is, is attacked, affected by flak. And you hear this this help him, help him continually through this, yep. uh, through this issue. And Yossarian, who plugs in his headset... But hears them saying, "Help him! Help him! Help the bombardier!" And Yosarian initially confused says, "Well, you know, I'm I'm the bombardier. I'm okay." And mm. they say, "Well, help him! Help him!" Uh, and this idea of coming in and not knowing because it's clear that something has happened dramatically. And as they're trying to orient and make sense of the situation, you know, once again, flying tens of thousands, uh, ten thousand yeah. feet. In oh the, yeah, it's chaotic. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's and a hole in the plane, and so you. 
if you've ever been in a car wreck or if you've ever had something drastic, I mean, a car wreck's a little extreme, but if you've ever had something drastic happen to you where you didn't realize that what had happened or what you thought would have, what you would expect it to happen didn't happen. Uh, for example, I, um, I had a rope snap on a, on a tree, on a rope swing going into a lake. I had a rope snap on me and I fell down and I like came to, I didn't lose mm. consciousness, but I kind of came to afterwards and I had to like piece together what had happened. Reality like, I, shifted. Yeah, did I yeah. slip? Did it fall? You know, like, and it's so when I had come to the scene over and over again, it kind of reminded me of something like that. And it's it's just a clever little device. But what we find out is, is that uh, Yossarian finds that his radio gunner, Snowden, is in trouble, in distress. And David, yeah. do you want to pick up here? No, 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 no. I wasn't going to read that particular section. Feel okay. free to read that when you get to it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, we wouldn't want to ruin it for you or anything like that. No, but, but should we go ahead and ruin it? Well, we're going to ruin the, the second part of it, um, which is... It's right near. It, it's the kind of thing that feels like it's the fade to black, and then you fade back up to say, "Well, what now?" And mm -hmm. that's essentially what happens. But uh, after um, after Snowden is uh, revealed, let's yes. say, uh, I mean, we alluded to it. Something Snowden's not going to make it on the plane, and uh, Yoser quote Yosarian was cold too and shivering uncontrollably. He felt goose pimples clacking all over him as he gazed down despondently at the grim secret Snowden had spilled all over the messy floor. It was easy to read the message in his entrails. Man was matter. That was Snowden's secret. Drop him out a window and he'll fall. Set fire to him and he'll burn. Bury him and he'll rot like other kinds of garbage. The spirit was gone. Man was garbage. That was Snowden's secret. Ripeness was all. And they bring up that secret a bunch of times in the mm -hmm. book because it's something that only Yossarian experienced mm -hmm. directly, as far as we know, is having to deal with someone. He's the only one carrying around Snowden's secret. Yes. Because um, he, he's the only one who was he there. He's the only one there with when, him. When, who, who died. When Snowden it dies out. in front of him. Yeah. 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 And um, the rest of the people with these high-minded ideals, to some extent, it's and again, chronologically, it's one of the first things that happens in the book. It's possible that Yosarian was a normal unquote guy like yes. most of the rest of them until this no, happened. I think I think it's kind of insinuated that this is where Yosarian really starts to unravel because shortly after this, this is when he comes back to the base and he refuses to put on clothes. Like he yeah. he he's like totally beside himself. Yeah, this he is affected in yeah, a very real way. Yeah. And seriously affected by and, this. You know, what I had kind of alluded to the fact that being a bomber and, you know, death from twenty thousand feet is not the same as death from six feet in front of you when you've actually had to shoot someone, yeah. you know, with a gun or stab someone. I mean, that's death is personal at that point. And that's exactly what happens, I think, right to Yosarian, is that Snowden's yeah. death becomes personal in a way that it had never really, I thought, occurred to him before. And It's finally real. In and, the same way the camp, nothing that happens on the base is real. Yeah. And also, too, that, you know, he now cannot handle the very system of Catch-22 that, excuse me, can't tolerate the system of Catch-22 yeah. any longer because of this, because of Stone's, because Stone's death has affected him in that way. I mean, it is, it has the, it has a, it is the departure point of the novel for Yosarian, I think we could argue. It definitely is, I think. And that it also, I think, is, once again, one of the most, I mean, the, the uniquely human thing that kind of really revolves around this, which is that it it, it, it it has that effect. Where other people seem so oblivious, Yosarian can no longer accept. And that is, I think, very, very crucial to the overall point of the novel. And I think that if you had an argument to make that it makes Yosarian the, the, the main character, so to speak, I mean, that kind of exe exemplifies the idea that it becomes, you know, his 
his his decision and his the, his effect that this has on him becomes the the you know driving force of the overall novel as well from this. That's the way that he can break the system. I mean, we alluded to it several times. Yossarian doesn't have need to break the system in all that many ways, but he is one of the only people who will deliberately subvert it. I mean, we talked about Major Major. The chaplain who lives within the rules right up until he uh, lies one time and gets a crazy mm-hmm. runner's high from having successfully deceived someone uh, tries to get into the Major Major's office and can't uh, when Major Major is in his office thanks to a catch-22 that Major yes. Major derived. Yossarian blows straight past that. I mean, you, I think Yossarian's line when Major he Major says... past Major to Ma- Sergeant Towser. Yeah. Well, it, well, no, he deliberately, he goes to, he deliberately addresses Major Major uh, who says... Um, you uh, you can't see me while I'm in my office. And Yosarian's line is, that won't do, sir. Yeah. Like, he just <laughs> defies it directly. Yeah. Like, Yosarian's got a clarity yes. on on the bullshit that most of the other characters don't. Right. And it's just, it's just once again, why he feels so affected by this. And like you've said, I mean, the the... The reveal, and I hate to, you know, it's unfortunate if you hadn't read this or whatever, but, I mean, the reveal of this moment is very, very effective in, yeah. this, in this novel. I mean, it is... It's the also the first hint of, of kind of any kind of spirituality that Yossarian has, because he does identify that there's some sort of soul, because, you know, <laughs> Snowden's secret is once that's gone, you're just a bunch of garbage right. anyways. And it's the first time that, like... Like even even Yosarian has like that human of a reaction. It's to the anything. only thing he's got to hold on to, right? Yeah, and it just becomes like, it just becomes just very very an important piece of the overall uh, novel, and in the movie. Yes. Yes. Now, now the book the book is liter- you know it's considered very black humor, and and it is some of some of the exchanges, some of the di- I mean, it is. Like hilarious, but <laughs> you know, at its heart, it is a very dark book. And the movie, the movie bypasses, I think, some of the humor to a certain extent, especially if you have not read the book prior to seeing the movie. And the movie stays fairly grounded in kind of the darker realm that yes. this book yeah. uh, resides in. I feel actually. Yeah, one yeah. Second. Oh, yeah uh, let's let's take a break real quick, yeah, just in know. case we feel the need to talk about this for a little bit. That does it for the book side of this review podcast. To listen to the movie leg of the podcast, flip over to the consumption log, either on iTunes or on actualgarbage.net. Thanks for listening.